Welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajjan Gohel, and this is the second episode of our three-part special about Afghanistan and the Taliban with the journalist, Lynn O'Donnell. Building on what we discussed in part one, when Lynn was detained by the Taliban, in this episode, we talk about what life is really like in Afghanistan under the Taliban and who the key decision makers are. There's so many aspects I want to unpack in this because you've addressed the fact that the Taliban are virulently not only misogynistic, but they are also very homophobic, that they have violently threatened people and in some cases have used violence, as you outlined, intimidation, coercion. Perhaps the interesting dynamic that is different from this Taliban to the previous uh, entity in the 1990s is that they seem to be very tech savvy, very media savvy, that they want to use the media for, as their oxygen of publicity in the way they somehow try to create that, uh, that perception of getting you to, quote, confess that and, and, and apologize uh, just shows that media optics matters to them. Uh, the fact that they actually thought that they could achieve something from that is what surprises me about maybe their limitations in, in understanding how the media works. The The thing that I wanted to uh, touch upon right now is you spoke about Abdul Kahar Balki. You spoke about being detained by the General Directorate of Intelligence. It's interesting that their Director General, uh, Abdul Haq Wasik, uh, he, like uh, Balki, are tied to the Taliban faction known as the Haqqani Network, which seem to be the most powerful group within Afghanistan in the sense that they control a lot of the key ministries, including the Interior Ministry, which is led by the leader of the Haqqani Network, Sirajuddin Haqqani. How important are they? Uh, and what do you think that uh, they're agenda is when it comes to Afghanistan, because they seem to want to have a public image with some of their people uh, appearing on Twitter and, and social media. But at the same time, this is also a prescribed terrorist group, which which you were mentioning uh, earlier. Well, the Taliban as a group is not um, sanctioned by the UNSC as a terrorist group. Um, their leaders are sanctioned as terrorists, and that's the difference. Um, Haqqani is a sanctioned terrorist group, as is the TPTP, um, the Tariqi um, Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban. Um, I think that the agenda is power and money. What else is there? Um, religion has been a very convenient beard for the Taliban for very many years, but um we can't and shouldn't forget that the Taliban is the biggest drugs-dealing cartel in the world and has been for a long time, controls global heroin production and supply, um, and that also means that it is embedded in organised crime worldwide. They've been moving into the production of methamphetamine for many years. Meth is a lot cheaper to produce and the return is a lot higher, but there's very little um, uh, 
uh, material um, and research done on that. They um, are uh, hugely embedded in the um, real estate markets of the region, uh, Turkey, Doha, Karachi, Malaysia. Um, there's a you know there's a, a lot of money flows from the Taliban to um, the rest of the world in very many ways. Um, Siraj is wealthy in his own right. He controls territory in um, provinces that border Pakistan that produce uh, agricultural products that are traded to China. Um, for instance, he makes millions of dollars a year out of um, pine nuts. Chinese love pine nuts, and the pine the Chinese, I suspect, are repackaging Afghan pine nuts and reselling them to the world as Chinese product. Um, the control of the minerals and mining um, sector has been, a lot of that has been controlled by the Taliban for a very long time. And when we see um, fights over uh, fight, fighting between Taliban groups, I think that's factions fighting for control of assets. Um, uh, the Chinese also want a, a big slab of that lithium, uranium, copper, you name it. Um, I am of the belief that the factionalization of the Taliban when it comes to ideology has been exaggerated and exploited very well by the Taliban themselves. We've seen in recent weeks a, a long uh, list of uh, people from the United Nations and um, NGO organisations that have been worried about the treatment of women um, and have been particularly galvanised in the last month or so by the ban on university education for women and women being able to work in the charity sector. And they come away from meetings with the Taliban saying, oh, they say that it's just these people who, um, who don't want women to go to school or work, but we want to and things will be clarified and change soon and you'll see it'll all be fine. But I don't believe that's the case. I think that ideologically um, the uh, sidelining of women from public life is, is not going to be something that the Taliban generally will um, oppose. Um, I think that the factional differences are over power and money only. Power and money tend to be the obsession that the the Taliban have which doesn't always get enough attention they because they are as you mentioned uh very entrepreneurial um, but mostly with very nefarious practices you spoke about the the fact that the the Taliban the Haqqanis that they are now dabbling in methamphetamines that seems to be a very growing uh, narcotic from the region which is getting dispersed uh, across the world. Um, the, me the meth, I believe, is produced from the Ephraja shrub, which, which just... grows wild in Afghanistan. So how do you keep your costs down? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't need the inputs that Poppy does. Yeah, exactly. And and I believe that it's also weather resistant, and uh, in it's it's a perfect uh, um, item to grow uh, for. Yeah for nefarious purposes. The 
uh, aspect of uh, minerals is also very significant because uh, in uh, Badakhshan province, for example, uh, and, and other northern provinces of Afghanistan, uh, the the country has many natural resources, but they haven't been uh, extracted. They haven't been fully uh, developed. You mentioned um, China. China seems very interested in Afghanistan, but at the same time, they're perhaps encountering some of the same challenges that the West did over the last uh, two decades. Uh, how does that relationship between China and the Taliban work? Because on paper, it doesn't actually make any sense whatsoever. Have they been able to meet uh, to some extent uh, and have an arrangement, or are they? Uh, is this a relationship that is ultimately uh, doomed to fail? Oh, doomed to fail. I'm not so sure. Uh, the Chinese have been very um, good to the Taliban for a very long time. That relationship goes back decades. And you might remember that in in the months before the uh, August uh, twenty one fall of the of the of the republic, the Chinese government red carpeted uh, Taliban leaders in Beijing. They made it very clear whose side they were on, and they've also been. Um, very vocal in calling for, for instance, the United States to release the foreign reserves of of the uh, of, of Afghanistan, and to um, uh, really, I think that they would like to see the United States recognise the Taliban and certainly engage with them more. Uh, but at the same time, you know, on balance. The United States has put $2 billion worth of humanitarian and development aid into Afghanistan since the Taliban took over. And um, I, I think the Chinese are probably still in, you know, five or six figures, certainly not, you know, uh, uh, that much. But what the Chinese do want and have made it very clear that they want is access to minerals and uh, mining. They've had the Mezinac um, uh, copper mine near Kabul tied up for a long time. Um, I think that uh, uh, they probably could if they wanted to start working on that now that security is a little bit better. The Chinese are very risk averse. That attack in December on their hotel in uh, Kabul would have um, very much put the wind up them and uh, angered them that the Taliban were not providing them with the security that they expect. I mean, there's two ways of looking at that. I mean, the Taliban have a very uh, good cover in uh, blaming ISK for everything that happens security-wise. Uh, but a lot of those ISK attacks bear Haqqani hallmarks for sure. So it's not outside the bounds of imagination that the Langan uh, hotel attack in December was carried out by the Haqqani to convince the Chinese that the Taliban need more weaponry <laughs> to keep them safe. I mean, you know, don't I don't rule anything out. Um, but then again, um, that Mezinac copper deposit is uh, supposedly the second biggest high quality copper mine in the world. The Chinese are the biggest users and biggest purchases of uh, of copper and having that in the background provides them with a hedge on price. So um, 
I, I never take anything that the Chinese do. I, I'm, I was a, a, a correspondent based in China for more than a decade. Um, I never take anything that the um, Chinese government does or says at face value. And their dealings with the Taliban are pragmatic and mercenary. They want to be able to stretch their Belt and Road uh, infrastructure network through Afghanistan so they can get the goods that they produce in their eastern seaboard factories to European European markets through Central Asia much faster than and cheaper than they could by um, boat. And um, they are already, as far as I understand, um, uh, very well embedded in the in the mineral sector, visiting uranium mines down south, for instance, and they have a lot of personnel up north are saying the gold quality and they're buying the... Uh, the coal that is coming out of those northern mines and being shipped cheaply into Pakistan, they're putting that to ships um, uh, uh, out of Pakistan to China, as far as I can understand. I don't know in what quantities. And so I, I don't think that, you know, there was a headline deal a couple of weeks ago on an oil field up north near the Pakistan, uh, near the Uzbekistan border near Hyraton, where we know that there are oil fields. But they already had that deal with the Republic. The Taliban uh, uh, did publicise the fact that it had been, that they had cancelled that earlier uh, contract. They've just reinstituted the old contract, but whether they get any money out of it or not is another thing. Um, China needs oil, and so uh, holding on to contracting ownership, if you like, of oil fields as well as copper fields is a way of making sure that it's there when they need it. And, and I think that it's it's pragmatic. The Taliban need all the friends that they can get. Uh, China, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, Russia, they've been there, but the Chinese are the, are the ones who really have the potential and um, are saying that they will um, to put the money in and and they may well be paying Haqqani and paying other figures in the um, in the uh, de facto authorities to um, uh, stay on their side. I mean, you know, they've got money. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it beyond them to just be paying everybody off because, like we said, it's all about money and power. Every comment you make makes me want to ask you a dozen questions connected <laughs> to that um, one one aspect that you you mentioned that really stood out was you spoke about how ISKP ISK the the ISIS affiliate they have the hallmarks of the Haqqani network that is something that I have noticed both in terms of strategy and in tactics Yet some people still want to draw a separation. They There's often this perception in some quarters that ISKP are the enemy of uh, the Taliban. And I think often when people make those remarks, they don't understand the shades of gray in Afghanistan. They don't understand how murky these different entities are. Because it does look like, uh, to me, Lynn, that the, the Haqqanis have infiltrated ISKP and they use them almost as a proxy in their own agenda to uh, undermine other Taliban factions, but also to to get more uh, concessions from other entities, including China. 
Yes, I agree with you. I think that once the Taliban took over, I noticed it almost immediately. Everything was blamed on ISIS, ISK, uh, very conveniently. And I remember I was being interviewed on a radio program about it, and I said, what, now the Taliban are in control? They're not liars anymore? And we believe everything that they say. I am firmly of the belief that that um, August 2021 attack at the airport, the Kabul airport, in the middle of um, the pandemonium around evacuation was a Haqqani attack. Um, I, I have no doubt about it. I think um, some of the highest profile attacks that we have seen on Hazara communities, on on um, uh, Sikh and Hindu communities have been Haqqani and that it is quite possible that uh, they are using ISK as a proxy. It's. It was also suggested to me a year or so ago that um, they traded um, opportunities for claiming responsibility. Uh, who's going to get the most out of claiming responsibility for this one? Um, we see reports, you know, on Bakhtar, which the, is now the Taliban mouthpiece, or even Tolo News, which is also, you know, very pro-Taliban these days in what it reports. Um, uh, the Taliban say that they've killed uh, seven um, ISK operatives in bloody blah part of the country. It's like, how do we know, you know? <laughs> they might just be some blokes they didn't like, um, another Taliban faction, somebody who was in control of, you know, a, a, a lapis lazuli mine that they wanted to, that this faction wanted to take over. There is no truth coming out of Afghanistan about anything. And so I'm, I'm quite with you. It's very convenient to draw those lines, but the murkiness is the reality. But like you say, I think it's all of a mesh. It's all it's all murky and everybody is using every, everyone else and the rest of us out here are the patsies, you know. <laughs> you know, the pushback that I get when I try and report this stuff is is um, really just a reflection of, of how um, well absorbed the new line has been. You know, Taliban kind of good now, ISIS bad. Yes, and everybody wants, I guess, a, a black and white narrative because yeah. it's just easier yeah. to report yeah. on. But for us, yourself, from for me, those of us who have been and spent time in Afghanistan, we understand the nuances, which are so important, especially with some of the challenges that lie ahead. One other thing that I wanted to track back on, because it's such an important dynamic, is the Taliban misogyny, yeah. uh, which has been institutionalized. They closed down the Ministry of Women's Affairs and the very building that belonged to uh, protect women's rights has now been repurposed perversely into the Taliban Ministry of Vice and Virtue, which effectively is the propagation of misogyny. Uh, there's this other perception that there are some Taliban factions that want to keep women's rights or restore them. There are others that are against it. Again, where do we draw these distinctions? Are, is that the fact that there are differences within the Taliban over the mistreatment of women, or are they ultimately all singing from the same sheet? Um, I think that this is also a complex issue. I don't think it's as easily drawn as has been made out, that there are 
you know, that the whole movement has been taken hostage by a dozen people and um, Haibatullah Akhundzada, the Supreme Leader's pronouncements, um, uh, are just a reflection of one small part of powerful um uh Taliban figures I don't I don't think that for a minute I think that this is this is the ideology you know we saw it in the north but before I went to um that valley that I mentioned before in the highlands that had been taken over by the Taliban for four days and the women had been terrorized um with threats of forced marriage there had been rumors but no confirmation that this was going on in areas that the Taliban were taking over. You'll remember how they did it. They they closed off the, the border points and then they started taking um, districts around provincial capitals. And it wasn't until the very later stages that they moved into the provincial capitals and then they started falling and that's when we decided if the if the capital has fallen, the province has fallen. That domino effect didn't come until um, the the last couple of weeks. In the meantime, in those districts, what they had been doing was pretty much setting the example of what was to come, but there hadn't been any confirmation um, uh, because they were also closing down media organisations um, as they took over of what they were doing. And so this is they're just re visiting 1996 to 2001 and as you say they're doing it with a much more sophisticated view of um, uh, how to use media nationally and internationally uh, but uh, this is just what this is ideology this is their ideology this is there's no surprises in any of this and I think that anybody who tries to say that you know it's only a few people who are powerful who really want women to stop working stay home not get educated um, just be pregnancy vessels for the guys um, is is delusional. This is Taliban ideology, and the Taliban control the country. So, of course, the whole country is going to fall in, and it's being very, very cleverly used. You, you know, we talked about their their um, understanding of how media works before. You know, I was the resident correspondent um, and bureau chief for news agencies in Afghanistan for a long time. And I used to tell ISAF, as it was then, the um, the NATO mission all the time, I'm getting something happens and within minutes I've got uh, texts and emails from the Taliban saying what it's about and um, how many were killed and how it happened and blah, blah. And it takes you days. They are way ahead of um, uh, the the diplomatic missions and the military effort in their use of media. They understood it very, very well from a very long time ago. Now what they're doing is using the fact that Western headlines will be about the latest awful treatment of women and not about the expansion of methamphetamine um, exports to um, whatever country in the world it is. Um, uh, they will... Um, uh, tell visiting um, uh, officials and uh, heads of uh, charities um, who come to talk about women what they want to hear because nobody is going in and saying, well, um, you know, uh, there are two Americans and two Canadians in prison. Can we talk about that, please? Or can we talk about the way... Um, uh, Hazaras are being forced out of their homes in this particular province or about um, how 
uh, you know, whatever whatever other atrocity <laughs> you want to name. There's a whole laundry list of them, but but they're very assiduously and cleverly using um, the Western obsession with with what appears to be their obsession with women's rights to um, draw a veil, if you like, over everything else that they do. They're very, very clever. It is a terrible, terrible thing that they are doing to women, but it's working for them ideologically and in terms of deflecting everything else that they do. I find it very upsetting what's happening uh, as I think everybody is about the mistreatment of women, because one of the great success stories in Afghanistan, which doesn't get a lot of attention, was women's empowerment, uh, where you see women playing prominent roles uh, over the last 20 years in uh, various administrations, in, uh, in, in in universities, as judges, in the media. Uh, Afghan women are an extremely important contributor to Afghan society, to the economy, and now their voices have been completely uh, shut uh, and they live in this very dark Orwellian world that the Taliban has created. The The thing I noticed, Lynn, when it comes to terrorism, extremism, and I think it, in many ways it appeals or it, it's uh, it's relevant for Afghanistan, I mean, is that if you see the reduction uh, and decrease of women's rights, you see the increase of radicalization and extremism. Uh, we saw that in Afghanistan in the 1990s, where misogyny became the the, the order of the day. Al Qaeda created uh, and and set itself up in Afghanistan. In the last uh, year and a half, the Taliban have returned. We've seen that Al Qaeda figures have come back to. Uh, the country. Most notoriously, of course, was the al-Qaeda leader, uh, Ayman al-Zawari, uh, who, interestingly enough, I'm actually writing a book on. Uh, surprise, surprise, he was found in a uh, villa in the center of uh, uh, Kabul. Do you think, so I guess this is a two-part question, Do you uh, are you surprised about the relationship that the Taliban have maintained with al-Qaeda, even though they promised the world that they wouldn't harbor them? And are you concerned that Afghanistan could once again become a cesspool for extremists from around the world like it had been in the past? I have been writing about the Taliban's relationship with and to al-Qaeda for many, many years. And uh, was one of the themes of my reporting before the end of the war. I did a, a, a paper for NATO on it in um, 2020, and I warned about um, uh, allowing the Taliban, which we did, we allowed the Taliban to take over, that this would lead to um, Afghanistan becoming a safe haven for uh, jihadist organisations that have fought with them and alongside them uh, for 20 years, and that's what's happened. Um, so I'm not uh, worried about it happening, uh, like becoming something like that. It is that. And um, there are and have been for a long time about two dozen jihadist organisations um, uh, affiliated with the, the Afghan Taliban. Um, Siraj Haqqani is... Um, uh, very close to, if not one of the leaders of Al-Qaeda. 
Um, his Haqqani group is a close affiliate of Al-Qaeda. Uh, the placement around the borders of affiliated terrorism terrorist organisations and jihadist groups is causing great concern amongst the Central Asian states. Um, the, the, the Taliban have transformed South Asia into the most dangerous part of the world, in my view. Well, that's very chilling to hear. Uh, and I, I don't think it should surprise many people, especially those that, that watch Afghanistan. This would be a good place to conclude here the second episode of our discussion, Lynn. Stay tuned for the third and final part with Lynn O'Donnell, where I talk with her about the future security challenges in Afghanistan and Pakistan and how they could have global ramifications. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andriopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.